Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. Our latest bonus episodes include a look at the Stephen King adaptation It, Chapter 2, and some highlights from this year's Toronto Film Festival. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with Genevieve Kosky and Tasha Robinson. Keith Phipps is off running scams in Dayton, but he'll join us on a future episode of the show. As a special treat for this recording of The Next Picture Show on Casino and Hustlers, we've prepared a batch of delicious blueberry muffins for my co-host and our production assistant, Dan the Snake Jakes. That attention to detail is what sets Sweet Emulsion Studios apart from other hastily improvised basement recording spaces. Yeah, these are delicious, Scott. And and there's so many blueberries in this muffin. Well, mine has nothing. Look how many blueberries she has and how many mine has. Tasha's is falling apart. Mine is completely dry. Damn it. It's like everything else in this place. I have to do it myself or it doesn't get done. From now on, I want an equal amount of blueberries in each muffin. Do you know how long that's going to take? I don't care how long it takes. Put an equal amount in each muffin. Scott, are you talking to yourself about blueberry distribution? Well, Sweet Emotion Studios is a very lean operation. Plus, only I can work up to the high muffin production standards that I've set for myself. And sometimes I have to give myself a stern talking to. While I do, can you talk about this week's pairing? Sure. Lorraine Scafaria's new movie, Hustlers, is earning a lot of comparisons to Martin Scorsese's crime dramas for its stylish depiction of exotic dancers running a lucrative scam on their Wall Street clients. But ripping people off is also what their victims do for a living. Only society sees one scam as respectable and one scam as criminal. This sentiment is at the heart of Scorsese's 1995 gangster epic casino, about a time in the early 70s when the mob controlled the Tangiers in Las Vegas, only to screw it all up and get run out of town, after which Las Vegas became the corporate, disnified city we recognize today. Both films are about the highs and lows of a criminal operation gone awry, but both also question capitalism in America and what types of people are officially allowed to rip people off. This week, we'll dig into Casino and consider how Scorsese's crime drama about Las Vegas squares with previous mob movies like Mean Streets and Goodfellas while staking out new territory of its own. Then next week, we'll bring in Hustlers and follow Jennifer Lopez, Constance Wu, and others who play working-class strippers responding to an economic downturn by launching a lucrative, illegal business on the side. But while they're out there bluffing, we're going to eat another muffin. show and it was paradise while it lasted they found a guy's head in the desert that's no good we got a problem he doesn't listen to me maybe he should get lost for a while take a vacation can't make it any clearer son i would just get out i try to do everything for you even though i knew Deep down inside, you would bury me. I buried you. You buried yourself. I have to be able to trust you with my life. Can I trust you? Can I trust you? I will go to the FBI. I will go to the police. I am not protecting you anymore. 
You want me to get out of my own town? You only exist out here because of me. He's a loose cannon. No! In the old days, dealers knew your name, what you drank, what you played. Today, it's like checking into the airport. And if you order room service, you're lucky if you get it by Thursday. Today, it's all gone. You get a whale show up with $4 million in a suitcase, and some 25-year-old hotel school kid is going to want a social security number. After the Teamsters got knocked out of the box, the corporations tore down practically every one of the old casinos. And where did the money come from to rebuild the pyramids? Junk bonds. That's from the closing monologue of Martin Scorsese's Casino, the capper to a three-hour statement about the crooked soul of Las Vegas, and, by extension, America itself. The trajectory of the film is a lot like Henry Hill's in Scorsese's Goodfellas five years earlier. Goodfellas begins with its hero saying, As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster, and ended with the same man in the witness protection program grousing about ordering spaghetti with marinara sauce and getting, quote, egg noodles and ketchup. With Ace Rothstein the handicapper-turned-casino-boss played by Robert De Niro, the rise and fall of the Teamsters-funded Tangiers in Las Vegas is about a gangster's paradise done in by violence and criminality, but also about politics and the types of people who are allowed to run the biggest of all capitalist scams. The one thing that hasn't changed is that Vegas picks tourists up by their ankles and shakes them until all the money comes out. The difference is who gets to collect. In the voiceover narration, Ace says, quote, Running a casino is like robbing a bank with no cops around. For guys like me, Las Vegas washes away your sins. It's like a morality car wash, unquote. Though Ace is Jewish, this piece of narration connects Casino with the Catholic sentiment that underscores many of his films, where characters from Charlie in Mean Streets to Jesus in The Last Temptation of Christ concern themselves with how to navigate a sinful world. Vegas is a morality car wash because it provides a context for which sinful impulses are not only forgiven, but rewarded. And for a man at the top like Ace Rothstein, pulling a 24-7 heist on visitors to the Tangiers is like an art form, requiring rigorous planning and a bit of improvisation to keep as much money in the house as possible, and in turn, keeping the bosses in Kansas City happy. Las Vegas may make robbing people okay, but in Casino, money has a corrosive power nonetheless. It affects Ace's business when the mob brings in his buddy, Nicky Santoro, to the Tangiers as his bodyguard and enforcer. As played by Joe Pesci, Nicky has a lot of the volatility and recklessness as his character in Goodfellas, and he sees Vegas as an all-you-can-eat buffet of petty criminality. Ace's relationship with Ginger, played by Sharon Stone, is more complicated. Ginger is a hustler who's well-known around town for greasing the right palms, seducing high rollers, and stuffing her purse with kickbacks. Ace woos her with chinchilla coats and jewels and designer shoes, but he mistakes her transactional nature for love, or at least assumes that if he keeps spending, she'll develop real feelings for him. Worse still, he's jealous and possessive like a lot of men in Scorsese movies, and she bristles from the attention. But the key difference between Casino and other Scorsese gangster films like Goodfellas or The Departed is that Scorsese is focused on the big picture, how Vegas operates as a culture and a system, and what that says about the country in general. Through extensive use of voiceover narration, the film breaks down the hierarchies on the casino floor where everybody watches everybody else and the eye in the sky watches all. It also breaks down the system of graft where mobsters, politicians, cash counters, and valet parkers each get their cut. As we would see again in The Wolf of Wall Street, where the broker ethos is about separating clients from their money, 
This is how Scorsese understands capitalism, as a system where everyone thinks they have a chance, but the house always wins. That didn't change when the mobsters were kicked out and the corporations took over. Society just deemed one form of robbery more acceptable than another. They had so much fucking money in there, you could build a house out of stacks of $100 bills. And the best part was that upstairs, the board of directors didn't know what the fuck was going on. I mean, to them, everything looked on the up and up, right? Wrong. The guys inside the counting room were all slipped in there to skim the joint dry. They'd do short counts, they'd lose fill slips, they'd even take cash right out of the drop boxes. And it was up to this guy right here, standing in front of about $2 million, to skim the cash off the top without anybody getting wise, the IRS or anybody. Now notice how in the count room nobody ever seems to see anything. Somehow somebody's always looking the other way. Now look at these guys, they look busy, right? They're counting money, who wants to bother them? I mean, God forbid they should make a mistake and forget to steal. Meanwhile, you're in and you're out. Past the Jagoff guard who gets an extra C-note a week just to watch the door. I mean, it's routine. Business as usual. In, out, hello, goodbye, and that's all there is to it. Okay, so uh, the question we always ask at the top of the show, you know, what is your experience with Casino and, and how does it play for you in the year 2019? This was my first time with Casino and I, I really don't have a good excuse for not having seen it before now, particularly because... Prior to seeing it, the thing I knew most about Casino is that it was considered to be very similar to Goodfellas, which is probably the Scorsese movie I like most. So uh, it would stand to reason that I would want to uh, watch Casino at some point. But uh, I, I guess what kept me from it and what often keeps me from a lot of uh, Scorsese films, even though generally I tend to enjoy them with some exceptions, but, um, you know, there's a lot of brutality in Scorsese movies, and I have to kind of, you know, psych myself up for that to uh, a certain extent. And uh, it's not necessarily a headspace that I willingly put myself in if I don't have another reason, you know, to experience it, um, which is after having seen the film. You know, I'm kind of kicking myself because like Goodfellas, it's an extremely enjoyable film to watch. Like it's three hours that passes very quickly. And I did like this movie a lot, probably even a bit more than Goodfellas, although that's one that I haven't revisited in a long time because of said aversion to, you know, immersing myself in a very brutal headspace <laughs> for three hours. <laughs> but I mean, I think maybe what tips Casino ahead of Goodfellas for me is I like the space it's playing in a lot more. This era of Vegas is just, it's more compelling to me. It's more colorful. It's flashier. It's, there's just more to look at. It's nonstop. The way, obviously, Scorsese uses music uh, very ostentatiously in his films, but in here, it's just absolutely nonstop to kind of reflect the fact that Vegas, you know, never sleeps. It's always noisy. There's always sound going on, and there's always sensory input happening in this movie. So it's very easy to get sucked in. But also the character of Ginger is what really kind of anchors this movie for me and gives me something to sort of hold on to beyond the uh, characters of Ace and Nikki who are you know, they're hard guys to, <laughs> to to like, to hard guys to root for, you know, and I mean, none of, there are no angels in this film, and that's the point. But um, I think just as someone to sympathize with, Ginger is a really kind of important figure in this in this movie for me. Tasha, how about you? Scott, you spent so much of what Genevieve just said, like nodding in agreement. <laughs> I'm about to make you shake your head and yeah. or uh, hang your head in disappointment. I 
don't care for Casino. I think this is my third time seeing Casino, and I think I forget each time I go years without watching it why I don't particularly care for it, because so much of it I find just really unmemorable. Like, Mm. a lot of the strongest elements of it are repeated directly from Goodfellas, and so it blurs into that movie for me. And then a lot of the weaker elements, like the fact, I find it very repetitious. I I think it's really interesting that Genevieve would seize on Sharon Stone's character as, like, an important part of the movie, because I find her breakdown to be... I feel like there's at least one too many just really long scenes of her stumbling around screaming while uh, De Niro follows her around trying to placate her slash be angry at her. Mm -hmm. And I feel that way about the entire film. Uh, The number of times we see, you know, the same barbershop or whatever business that is full of gangsters kind of grumbling about what's going on in Vegas. The number of times we see Pesci like disintegrating and acting out. The number of times we see De Niro kind of grumbling about the setup. I don't feel like this film has a good tight arc to it. To me, it feels very wandering and very bloated and and just circular in a way that I just don't find particularly appealing. You know, it's a pretty typical rise and fall, though. I mean, they're, they're, you know, things are going well, and then they don't. There's an arc to that. Sure. I mean, there's an arc to it. It's just not a tight arc. It's not, there's there's so there's so many things in it. I The blueberry thing, we all had a, a lot of fun with, and your blueberry muffins mm-hmm. are delicious. But what does that add to anything? What are we, from dozens of things like that, of just like small little details, that strikes me as something that maybe was true in real life. Like maybe like turned up in a deposition or an autobiography or something and somebody couldn't resist. But in this case, it just it's a strange little aside in a three-hour movie that to me really does feel like a three-hour movie. I mean, I think it's just a character detail in a movie that's full of character detail, but it's a, a reflection of how detail-oriented Ace is, you know, about his tendency to micromanage, you know, and I agree with you that there's not a really strong arc to this movie. That didn't bother me in watching it because, as, as Scott says, there is sort of a, a broad rise and fall, but I feel that the appeal of this movie for me was spending time in this hyper flashy world and these hyper flashy characters and getting to know the nuances of them beyond that surface level flash. And I think they come through in those small moments. And it is a movie of moments to a certain extent. You know, it's not a movie where, you know, one scene leads to another leads to another. It does kind of jump around and cover a large span of time. And I think that's what the movie is supposed to do. I think that's what it's trying to do. And I think it succeeds in that respect. I I also understand not responding to it as you haven't. I've just I've seen so many other gangster films and so many other Vegas movies uh, that appealed to me more that I thought did a more interesting job of embedding you in what this world is like, or that did it in a more distinctive or idiosyncratic way. I do think that the main difference between us is, yeah, I this isn't necessarily a world that I inherently want to be in the world of misogyny and violence and really bad behavior that isn't punished and humongous corruption. I mean, that's the world of any Scorsese movie. Like, I feel like you're buying into that with any Scorsese movie uh, I'm talking about. I mean, you, you you said this might be your favorite Scorsese movie. I would argue for King of Comedy, which isn't really that world, um, and which is a film I absolutely love. Taxi Driver is a, a very different kind of story and is, is a fascinating story. After Hours is pretty fascinating. Um it Cape Fear. A lot of Scorsese's I don't care for. <laughs> Cape Fear is really pretty fascinating. <laughs> Gangs of New York, The Aviator. Like, there's so many films. Sure. I, he, yes, he does return to this world over and over and over. And every time he does, I end up kind of feeling like I don't have his fascination about 
like the, the what I've come to think of as the HBO realm, which is uh, like old, well-off white guys uh, who are very powerful and very rich. And specifically, the story ends up being how they oppress, you know, women, people of color, anybody who's outside their little group. In this case, we, we see over and over what it's like to be not an, not Italian and in the mob. And uh, I find it I find it oppressive and tiresome, and I find the characters all blur together. But Scott, obviously, you love this movie. You've said that you love this movie. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about this world, and why do you like the way this movie conveys this world? Well, I mean, there's a lot to get into. I mean, first of all, with regard to Scorsese's interest in gangster films, and particularly with Italian gangsters, I mean, this is the, that is the world in which he grew up. He grew up in uh, in, in in seeing these types of characters in, outside of his window. At least with Mean Streets, I mean, things escalate. These characters, these characters, on a much larger scale than kind of small time hoods in his neighborhood, but that's a world that he knows well, and it's exciting in a way of understanding, you know, larger themes through these characters and impulses too. I mean, certain these kind of jealous, possessive men. I mean, you see them, you see them in Raging Bull and in Taxi Driver and in Mean Streets and all the classic films. So I mean, he's investing a lot of himself personally in these movies. But what I really like about Casino, I mean, for me, the first third of Casino is probably is as good as anything he's done. Yes. The thing I really love about it is just is how clearly it lays out this system that mm-hmm. is in place to rip you off. Like that in this in, in how how everybody gets their cut and how this person watches this person watches this person and how this person skims here and you got to make sure this guy's happy and all of this happens that you know the, the politicians have to be greased and accommodated and every single you feel like you really understand the inner workings of a casino and how complicated it is and what is on what you know what Ace Rothstein's responsibilities are. I mean, like the blueberry muffin scene to me is just it's a wonderful. Those details are what makes the movie for me. Like you know, and as as Genevieve said, it's a character detail to be able to for him to look at the muffins and say, "Hey, this one's falling apart. This one is not." I mean, we need to run a a good casino here and maximize. He's looking to maximize the amount of money that he both takes in and keeps. I mean, that's his job. That's the way he sees his job, and he does it to extraordinary detail which is why he's hired to run the casino i mean he he was the guy he was the handicapper who knew you know uh, how a ball bounced on a particular form of you know, wood and, and would have that edge over other people who are sports betting i mean that's who that character is and so i appreciated that aspect of it and i appreciate generally the anecdotal nature of the movie i mean it might make it seem a little bit lumpy and and if you don't if you're not grooving on the film i'm sure it's, it feels like a grind but it also you know, those types of details are what bring any film or piece of fiction to life for me. Um, just, you know, just that specificity, you know, makes it exciting. And you get these like nice little sequences. You get like the sequence where the, you get the, the cheaters coming in and that who are signaling each, each other and the way that whole thing is broken down, the way they catch them, the way they, they're reprimanded. I mean, all that is great stuff. I'm nodding along with you, what you're saying about the first third of this movie just being so great and it you know the the tiktok of how this casino just casino life generally but also the the hustle i guess the, if you want to call it that at the, at the heart of this this movie how how it works you know it's it's done in a really flashy way with all the voiceover and uh songs and interesting cuts and the of course that opening scene of the car getting blown up and the you know how that kind of sets our expectations for what's to come you know there's a lot in that first third that is really audacious and really compelling to me but as i said what really like kept me engaged with this movie is the character of ginger 
and how she functions within this sort of ecosystem and how she is both uh, a hustler and a victim and the the nuances of the situation in which she's found herself um, and what she's arguably put herself in to a certain extent. But, you know, as I said, there are there are no angels uh, in this movie. And like the way in which her character is introduced and the way in which Ace uh, falls in love with her and proposes to her and everything. And that's a character whose wings have been clipped and we spend the whole movie watching her flounder. And it's, it's sad to watch. It's hard to watch. It's maybe grating to watch, depending on your, your viewpoint. But I just really responded to it throughout the film. And, and uh, Sharon Stone's performance is a big part of that, but also just that being such a, a complicated character and her role within this, like I said, ecosystem being so complicated just really kept me engaged. I just didn't find her complicated. Uh, in fact, oh. I found her frustratingly simplistic. I feel like we're introduced to an interestingly complicated uh, person who has her addictions and vices and who has found a place for herself in this ecosystem that's that's just pretty rich. And then she doesn't want to marry for money. She doesn't want to get involved in this relationship that she knows is not based on love, but she lo- allows herself to be sort of seduced and or bullied into it. And from Or that- hustled. Or hustled, as the, <laughs> the hustler the case got hustled, <laughs> and then from there on in, she just kind of turns into a, a shrieking termagant, uh, and oh, like over and over and over, we see her abusing pills and abusing alcohol and uh, having hysterics and going back to this loser who has nothing going on for him except that he's James Woods and abusing her child horrifically and. At the point where she ties her child to the bed, locks her in the room, and like leaves any hint of sympathy I could have had for her is gone out the window, but we still have to watch her, you know, screaming her way through several more scenes of abusing everybody around her and kind of being given a pass. There's an interesting parallel between the degree to which everybody gives Nikki a pass because he's violent, unpredictable, scary, and connected, and the way everybody gives her a pass for the exact same things for different reasons. I I do sort of like that thread of the movie. And I I think the fact that the two of them sort of end up together is interesting and disturbing, but it got, it takes so long to get there and then so little comes of it. (laughs) I think, I think, I think it's, it's notable and interesting that of the three main players in this, she is the only one who doesn't get to speak up in the voiceover and she, her intentions are left a mystery in a way that Ace and Nikki's are not. So I think maybe that is why I'm able to project intent and emotions onto her that maybe are not said explicitly by the character, but I think come through in the increasing desperation she shows in the face of having the the independence she had as a well-known and well-respected Vegas hustler before she hooked up with Ace and just kind of lost her identity within the marriage in a way. Yeah, and her freedom too. I mean, there's also, I mean, I think the key scene there is the proposal, really. I mean, Mm -hmm. she's telling him, you know, as much as she possibly can that this is not going to work, that she's the type, you know, we understand completely even from her, his description of her, what she is there to do, you know, what her operation is. And, and she's good at it. She's good she at was, it. And money, yeah. you know, money and, and material things bring her a lot of happiness, but also that flexibility to be out there scamming like that's what she likes to do. So if she has to be turned into someone's wife, 
and a mother on top of that. I mean, it's just, it's a terribly restricting role, you know. And then and then of course you get this past that she's running away from uh, that we can only kind of imagine in terms of her, you know, this James Woods character and the kind of hold that he has on her and continues to have on her even when she has money. I mean, one of my favorite moments in the movie is is when they're getting married and and uh, all you hear is uh, James Woods' voice, you know, on the phone. Um, you know, kind of beckoning to her. And it's just like this, you know, for all of this pomp and circumstance and luxury and this this extraordinarily beautiful world that she's entering into, that that voice is what really has a, a grip on her and kind of suggests where things are going to go from there. I feel like what's missing for me in this movie in a lot of ways is a sense that Scorsese himself sympathizes with or wants us to understand these characters past all of the explanation of themselves that they do. I I just get the feeling, like, I feel like his treatment of Ginger is very contemptuous. I feel like his treatment of her relationship with Lester is very unnuanced and, and one-sided and dismissive and just like, you know, look at this woman who could have everything if she wasn't so hung up on this complete loser. I feel like Scorsese's treatment of Nikki is similarly unsympathetic like we have no idea he's just a goomba he's just a thug uh he's unpredictable and scary and dangerous which makes him exciting because you never know what he's going to do much as you never know what he knew what he was going to do in goodfellas but i found it hard to understand why besides plot reasons uh he was the way he was and ace for me he likes gambling. He's really good at it. He's a really precise person. And he keeps telling us he's in love with Ginger. But beyond that, I didn't ever feel like I knew him. I felt like the movie kept explaining him to me in his words, but not in a way that I ever felt. And I, I feel it's because all of these people, Scorsese kind of feels that he's an idiot for for putting up with so much from Nikki, for putting up with so much from Ginger, and that his fall is in his own actions like this whole film feels contemptuous to me i mean the opening lines of the movie are ace talking about how important trust is how important it is to be able to put your complete trust in someone and it seems like his character is so much about finding something that you can be sure about that you can you know believe in 100 percent and that in the context of an odds maker I think that's a really interesting character trait to follow over the arc of this movie. It's also a lesson in, in how you know little anyone can control certain elements of their life. I mean, he, he doesn't, you know, he's he's the guy who has everything clocked, but uh, he can't control Nikki. <laughs> he can't control Ginger. Can't control Ginger. Um, yeah. and and everything kind of falls apart. I mean, if I'm going to give can't a little, can't control the Las Vegas Gaming Commission. Definitely. Well, no, he doesn't. <laughs> Can't control uh, Dick's mother's well. who shows up for some strange reason. No. So if I'm going to give a little bit, of, a little bit to Tasha here, I mean, I, I do feel that characterization. I, I like these characters and find them interesting. I, I think Nikki is a bit of a, re, you know, that's really where it feels like a retread of of Goodfellas. That character is so similar to the character that Pesci played in Goodfellas. Love to watch him, but but um, there's not necessarily a new dimension there. But I, I tend to think about casino as being on a much larger scale and about much bigger themes and about the world of the film being the most important part of it rather than the people within it. I mean, I think Scorsese is trying to tell us a story about America and how and capitalism and how things work 
and that's a huge goal for him but it's also something that he is designing the film technically to pull off i mean to it's a i think what he does in this film again in that first third especially is pretty radical i mean you really don't i mean that, there's not there's hardly any dialogue in the first third it's a lot of voiceover narration a lot of him ace you know and nikki sort of laying out the world of the film and the camera being completely free to move you know i mean it just it's such a dynamic piece of filmmaking but also really bold and not unprecedented in a way i mean he had a lot of narration and in, in goodfellas and it was super effective all from henry hill's perspective but i think it really i really i really think that from the beginning the film is trying to uh, trying to establish itself as uh, this the canvas is much much larger and the can and that world of, of the film as being the most important thing about it i agree with you 100 percent, but i think that's why i like goodfellas so much better i think it's tighter i mean it's not a short film but it's still half an hour shorter than this and it's just so much more focused on the characters it's so much more focused on a smaller story about you know bad behavior and bad luck and bad decisions in this world it's also funnier uh it's i find this movie very self-serious apart from you know here and there moments of uh (laughs) laughter laughter and muffins yeah you know there's just there's (laughs) there's almost nothing in it that's just as funny as that opening line about you know ever since i could remember i wanted to be a gangster goodfellas opens by telling you uh, you know, this is this is about a guy who really got in over his head, and it's ridiculous, and it's okay to laugh at him. Uh, Casino just feels more self-important. Casino feels more like Scorsese is trying to tell you, like, this is the story of America. And it, right down to that ending where uh, oh, don't t- don't don't mock the ending. Don't oh, do it. I gotta do the it. Ending is the ending is so is so brilliant. I gotta do it, Scott. <laughs> do, do you sympathize with him? I mean, well, it's after not him, it's 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 just it's just the thesis that I mean, the film is entirely which is why i love the keynote with the with the closing narration because the film is all about that uh, the ending it's all about saying hey look at the vegas that you that you know now the vegas you, as it is today this terrible you know antiseptic place where you can't get your room service and i'm sure all the muffins are dry but it's still doing the same thing and, and maybe quite of question that a little bit like who's benefiting you know and, and how is the place built you know junk bonds so so what what's the difference here and i just i think that's such an important point for the film to reach it's kind of like it's it's the what's the word i'm looking for the, it's the ark of the covenant it's the important <laughs> it's the important thing that, that the film is doing is leading up to in my opinion in that it oh, the ending opens up for you and your face melts off yeah exactly it's a face melter <laughs> i just i i mean having spent three hours watching how old vegas was a slimy pit of corruption where people were constantly being murdered and stuffed in the <laughs> desert and everybody was miserable or addicted or abusing each other, or cheating on each other. And people were getting their hands smashed in, in back rooms, all of this stuff to have it end with this like statement of nostalgia for like the good old days when it wasn't, you know, crappy like it is now that other people rather than me are making tons of money on it. I just, I found it, like a hilarious statement because it's so self-serving but i didn't find it convincing here's the key though you're seeing all that stuff people who go to the casinos are not seeing all that stuff so scorsese is telling you what is actually happening behind the scenes at a casino so the experience that you would would have going to the tangiers when ace rostin is running it is a quite pleasurable one or at least as pleasurable as you as it can be losing all of your money but he's showing you literally where the bodies are buried that outside of the city is is dark and there's desert mm-hmm. it's a desert and there are holes there and and there's all of this criminality that's happening 
behind the scenes and in transactions that are happening right in front of us but we can't see. And he's showing us with his camera these transactions, the skimming, the relentless skimming and bribing and kickbacks. He's showing us all that, but that's not. But if you are a someone who is going to Vegas, you're not experiencing that. I think the film does a pretty good job of making those distinctions. Yeah, I, I would also push back against the idea that it's being nostalgic about old Vegas or, or claiming it is better in some way than than Vegas as we know today. Like, I keep coming back to the shot very very early in the movie, the overhead shot of Vegas lit up in the complete blackness of of the desert, you know, and they they're it's where they're talking about the holes and you know going out into the desert and, but it's just such a a striking visual, this glittering bauble surrounded by blackness, you know, by emptiness, a, a complete void, and like I don't think we're supposed to pine for this Vegas or or any Vegas. Like part of what intrigues me about stories set in Vegas is that it is a town that holds no appeal to me whatsoever. Like I do not gamble. (laughs) I have no interest in gambling. The spectacle of it is just, you know, not really my aesthetic, but maybe because of that, I am drawn to stories like this that kind of dissect the appeal and why it is maybe wrong, you know, to to feel that that appeal or that draw to Vegas. So I think that's what I maybe I'm responding to in the portrayal of the of the world here. So Casino has the anecdotal quality of Goodfellas strung together with a lot of big sequences and set pieces. What what were the sort of standout sequences for you? I think the one that always strikes me most, uh, because it's it's so scary in a way that speaks to the movie itself. The one where Ginger and Lester are in the diner together and Ace comes to get them. Mm-hmm. And there's that moment of, oh, this is going to be a moment of terrible violence. Oh, no, they're just going to they're going to sit down and have a talk. Oh, that talk is going to be even worse. And now there's the violence. And during all of it, like, you don't know what's coming. Like, it's there's like a heavy cloud hanging over the entire sequence of you just don't know how bad this is going to get or where it's going to go but it's also a very taut sequence between three people who are all doing I think a really excellent job I mean you can really feel in that scene Lester's sliminess his looking for an angle his looking for a way to deal with this Uh, but then in the end he just like walks out on Ginger Uh, he just leaves her alone there like with these violent terrifying men to save his own skin and it doesn't even save his own skin and Sharon Stone is really going overtime uh, with her reaction as they see them beating Lester down. Mm-hmm. And De Niro is just so cold and calm and contemplative about the whole thing. Uh, yeah, just every part of that sequence, I think, is is really tight, really taut. Genevieve? I mean, I, I feel like we've already covered uh, a lot of standout sequences in our talk of the, the first third of this movie, where uh, a lot of my favorite uh, moments uh, reside. And we also kind of talked about the proposal scene, which is probably what I would highlight if we hadn't already talked about it. Um, but since we have... I think maybe I just want to, and this is a standout scene, not so much for how much I I liked it, but because it's a little confounding, but Ace's move toward the end of the movie into doing a television show um, (laughs) from from the casino and uh, having De Niro in this sort of talk show host mode and these, these loud garish suits and him trying to 
you know, hold on, like this last gasp attempt to like hold on to what he had as it is, you know, very clearly falling apart due to his own actions. Because I mean, I've only seen this movie once, so correct me if I'm wrong, but the uh, his gaming license being not even revoked, but denied, I guess, is a result of him firing the county commissioner's brother-in-law mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. And, 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 and that, that kind of back and forth they, they have where, where Ace just kind of shuts him out and, and ignores him and the dominoes fall from there. But um, I guess, you know, maybe I'll ask you, Scott, as someone who has a lot more uh, experience with this movie, or Tasha, what you think of how Ace is uh, shown to us in that point in the movie. I mean, I think that Ace does operate by a code, and it's a rigorous code that gets him in trouble in a way. I mean, I think he does want to, as much as this is a criminal operation, and as hyper aware as he is in participating and managing this criminal operation, he does have a sense of how things are supposed to be and what's fair, really. I think he's particularly bothered by the political part of it, of having to hire these yokels who have no business being floor managers, of, the, of having to appease a million county commissioners and accommodate all of them. And that kind of corruption kind of drives him crazy and the, and, and the things sort of fall apart when he finally decides to put his foot down and say, this is no, this is not reasonable what you're asking. So I find that interesting. I mean, to me though, you know, we, again, we talked about a lot of standout sequences. I mean, I, I really like the sequence with the, uh, the two guys trying to get away with a blackjack scam and getting punished for it. And the way that whole sequence plays out is really outstanding. I like the sequences where, when he's showing us wh- how the money kind of flows in and, in and out and around the place. But I also liked just, there's so many small details that are included that I, I just savor throughout the filming stuff like, you really want to make sure that you dig the hole in advance, you know, in the desert, because if you spend, you know, if you have to spend 30 or 45 minutes digging and somebody sees you, you're going to have to dig, dig some more dig holes more for holes. the people to yeah. see you. Or <laughs> something like the spy plane or whatever that crashes onto the golf course, <laughs> you know, because it's been in the air too long. That's a really great detail. Or it's just full of, you know, the blueberry muffins. For it's just so, it's, it's The scene so, where we spend 20 minutes watching uh, De Niro yell at people because uh, some showgirl is eight pounds overweight during the weekly weigh-in right. that he's instituted where he lines them all up and stares at their bodies. That's right. great. I love, yeah. I love, I no, mean, I don't a, love that. No, he's a bad person. That's They're all bad is. people. <laughs> I mean, he's not, he's not our hero. We don't love him. He's yeah. just, he's just, he is who he is. And I mean, again, these are the type of things that he is looking out for. And it's the type of things that make the film credible and authentic is because Scorsese and his screenwriter, Nicholas Pelleggi wrote the book and also wrote Goodfellas with Scorsese. I mean, they're so invested in these small details and, and really make a movie about stringing all of those things together into a, a large vision. It's like a big pointillist canvas thing that he's, that, that he's doing. But uh, um, that's what kind of brings the movie to life for me on top of just, you know, the music and the color and the, you know, it's just, it's just a very appealing on a, on a certain like a child brain thing with me where it's just like, oh, the pretty mm-hmm. colors and the pretty and the exciting music and all of the, the action. Saul Bass credit sequence. Oh, Saul Bass. There was a whole, <laughs> there's a period where he worked with Saul Bass with like Cape Fear and Age of Innocence and in this movie to do these like beautiful credit sequences and I love that <laughs> I love this I think 90s Scorsese generally is nearly as good as the 70s work he did a lot of really interesting things and the Saul Bass thing was Saul and Elaine in this case a real standout I love this opening credit sequence I mean I think that that credit sequence which is just like a you know splash after splash of abstract neon imagery is just kind of reflective of the almost 
narcotic quality of the of the visuals in this movie you know like i was really struck by the look of this movie pretty much beginning to end you know the the costuming the set design you know the the music as as, as i previously spoke of but just as a visual spectacle I can't look away from this movie, you know, and it starts from it starts from that very first shot of of the car getting blown up, but then the credit sequence I think kind of codifies the the look of of this movie that is carried out pretty much through the end with a with a few pointed diversions from it. And then you have the the tumbling body throughout the credits, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, emblematic of basically what happens to Ace, basically where he is. He has no control. He's falling uh, through (laughs) most of the movie. Your voice is so sour. Uh, It's, (laughs) you know, I like I I want I want a movie where the uh, the control freak who tries to do right by everybody and uh, tries to not hire uh, incompetence uh, maybe doesn't spend the entire movie getting uh, crapped upon by <laughs> Joe Pesci, who really deserves the terrible fate that he ends up with. Which, by the way, I feel like that sequence went on longer than I needed it to, but oh my god, the overhead shot of the shallow grave mm-hmm. that they've dug for his brother, mm-hmm. where yeah. they drag his body to it and and just sort of fling him contemptuously at it, and he just kind of like rolls and folds into it. That's got to be one of the great all-time Scorsese shots. Yeah, he's good with the overhead death shots. <laughs> he, did, he, 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 one of my favorite shots in all of his movies is is, uh, is an overhead of in Kundun that's a uh, that's kind of a uh, with all these these monks who are sort of sort of all laid out in a very abstract way. That's very very red, as you might imagine. But um, we'll get into more bodies that will be buried <laughs> later. Uh, but for right now, we need to get into feedback. Now it's time for feedback, when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. We got one of those anything else in the world of film emails from Jason in Austin, who wanted to know whether we punish films by artists who repeat themselves. We've condensed this down from a much longer piece, but Jason starts with Taylor Swift's new song as an example and asks us how it might apply to movies. Tasha, can you read Jason's query for us? Sure. Jason writes, In every album and every new single, some artists carry over the strongest elements of what was successful before. So that if this is someone's first time listening to, say, Taylor Swift, her new song will pretty clearly show you why you should like her, why everyone else who likes her does, and what you can anticipate from her other work, even if longtime fans of the artist feel like they're getting a little repetitive. Sort of like, if you like this other stuff, you'll like this. And if you like this, you'll like this other stuff. Every work functions as a teaser for everything else by this particular creator. So do you think it works the same way in film? Do you think the filmmakers or even actors who do the same thing are selected to do the same thing over and over or doing it not because they don't know any different, but for a reason like this? Do you think they do the same thing over again because they've mastered it, hopefully will get better at it every time and need to give each pitcher the maximum chance of success for their producers? Do you think that a movie that's the same as every other movie by a certain director, actor, editor or sound designer should be docked points for being so uh, or should stand on its own? I'd like to thank Jason for sending this to coincide with our episode on Scorsese's Casino. <laughs> Frequently yeah. dinged for being so similar to to Goodfellas. Just, you know, really nice thematic connection there, <laughs> Jason. <laughs> I think there are a whole bunch of things going on in this letter. In terms of why they do it, I think there are a number of reasons why they do it. One is that you sometimes see artists 
expressing artists with certain deep seated beliefs express those beliefs over and over. And the person I would point to on that, uh, I talk about him a lot. He's one of my all time favorite directors is Terry Gilliam. Terry Gilliam's films are anarchic and wild because that's his aesthetic. That's the way he likes to tell stories. That's what interests him in stories. But Terry Gilliam's stories are uniformly about the power of fantasy, the power of imagination, the power of storytelling, and how they help people escape mundane lives. And I don't think that he does that because he thinks it's his brand and it's going to give his movies a maximum chance of success. I think that's just what fundamentally interests him. I do think that there are actors that do the same thing over and over because they get typecast. Uh, you know, they get pulled in the same kind of movies by somebody who, you know, knows that this person will be a success doing that thing. And I don't know whether you can ding them for that, because it just kind of comes down to like, this is what they're being offered. You know, you can get kind of a one for them, one for me uh, routine going, or maybe you can get to do something else. But over and over, you'll hear actors say, well, you know, I'd love to have more variety in my work. Those just aren't the roles that I'm offered. So I'm not sure we should be dinging anybody for being repetitive in their work. It mostly just comes down to when you see somebody doing the same thing over and over, it's inevitable that you're going to say, well, you know, Terry Gilliam's uh, Adventures of Baron Munchausen is a fine movie, but it's doing the same thing as Brazil and Brazil does it better. That's just it's going to be sort of inevitable that you're going to compare things. Yeah, to me, the classic example of this in film is Yasujiro Ozu. I mean, you are, you know, you've seen, you know, so many Ozu films are the, the plot is like, you know, you have a widower and his devoted daughter and the daughter is kind of getting past marrying age and, and what what. You know, and he wants her to go, and this this is sort of poignant situation that's built up. I mean, he you know he is somebody who would it's just all about variations on a theme with him, and you see that with a lot of filmmakers who kind of keep things tight. I mean, Eric Romer was that way too to to an extent. Uh, who just did a lot of you know conversational uh, f- films that were about a couple of pe- just people talking <laughs> and and uh, it's it's fine i mean i think there's a lot of uh i think it's fine for filmmakers to have kind of this narrow thing that they're doing if you just cannot kind of appreciate the small changes the small details that, are, that that change from from piece to piece and there's something kind of cool about filmmakers who you can identify like terry gilliam you know you look at ter- you, you watch five minutes of terry gilliam film you know you, you know you're watching a terry gilliam film you cannot be mistaken for somebody else i think that's a pretty cool thing and and uh nothing you would want to change um what do you think genevieve well first i want to sort of highlight or underline what tasha said about sort of the the distinction between applying this to you know, directors or or screeners or quote unquote storytellers, as opposed to actors who are, you know, maybe put in a position to fill the same sort of role over and over again. And that is not something we should quote unquote ding them for. But I'd also push back against the idea that, you know, it's a, there's points to be deducted if uh, for, for a creator repeating themselves in some way. And I think it's kind of interesting to think of this in uh, the context of franchises, like long-running franchises, like the, the Bond films, for example, or the, the Fast and Furious movies, you know, which arguably do the same thing over and over again, but they find new ways to do it or new details to draw out or n- just new ways to top themselves. And that, I think, is what keeps fans of those franchises coming back, not some expectation that they're going to get a new spin on this thing you know like i I think 
in some cases, being the same as movies that came before is seen as an asset mm -hmm. uh, to some viewers, not something that uh, that should be punished. There's also just in the same sort of way, like the the idea of like a theme or an emotion that just carries over from film to film, like like with Ozu or the Dardenne brothers. The oh, Dardennes are a great example. The yeah. Dardennes movies yeah. are very textually different from each other, but you kind of know going in that what you're going to get mm -hmm. is going to be a painful uh, series of emotions, probably by somebody trapped in a situation they can't control, uh, that spins out of control, and like a, a lot of time spent... I don't want to say wallowing because that's that sounds so negative, but steeping in the depths of that emotion. But that said, the stories are very, very different. And in each case, you're going to get like really sharp, on point, interesting characterization and a whole lot of variation on a theme. So I think there are ways for uh, directors to repeat themselves. Like You don't go into a Dardenne Brothers movie uh, expecting a, a laugh along uh, joke a minute musical. Hmm. You, you kind of know what you're going to get. But within that, you have no idea what variation you're going to get. Now, at the same time, you have directors that might change up the text every time, but you know what you're going to get and not in a good way. And the first person that comes to mind for that is Tim Burton. Mm. You know, Tim Burton mm. has made a brand out of a certain form of like wacky uh, tragedy, the tragedy of outsiderdom and yet the, the familial qualities of outsiderdom, the way outsiderdom and being a weird uh, <laughs> yeah. person who just doesn't fit in like makes you special and brings you together and you've got like the macabre whimsy kind of tone and probably Johnny Depp and uh, Helena Bonham Carter showing up over and over and over but all of those elements start feeling very very forced when they're repeatedly put into stories that don't necessarily fit them when it does start to feel like Tim Burton TM as opposed to any sort of like organic story yeah, I think that's a good point. I think I think the word brand is definitely an interesting one. I think it, we, we're talking about an artistic impulse. I'm a, a lot more favorable to that. Uh, uh, you know, this this sort of these themes that an artist is trying to explore again and again. But a brand is a whole other thing, which is what makes Tim Burton a problem, which makes and what makes a lot of these franchises really boring <laughs> to me. I mean, some and you look at like something like Star Wars. The problem it ends up being with something like that is that the fans end up expecting all of these things that a Star Wars movie has to be, and then Ryan Johnson comes along and does commits a couple of small heresies, and they lose their minds, and it just makes for very boring movies if you if you just are about kind of like giving people what they expect instead of as a franchise or as a brand that's when things are kind of run into trouble for me so moving on to a a letter about an episode of our show i'm excited to report that our episode on fight club and the art of self-defense earned us a letter from someone eager to talk about the latter film even though it didn't make much of an impact to the box office jim from boston considers it the film he enjoyed most this summer despite having seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood twice. Genevieve, do you want to read an excerpt from Jim's email? Sure. Jim writes, I know that I'm a few weeks late on this one. I had every intention of writing you as soon as I finished a podcast, but I went on vacation and my mind drifted away. But my desire to discuss the art of self-defense did not, and so here we are. Audiences today are so smart. They have consumed so much content that it is genuinely quite difficult to surprise them. I'm a writer and a teacher of screenwriting, and one of my favorite movies to discuss with my students is Die Hard. It is a masterclass in the use of setup and payoff. We, as an informed audience, know that nothing in a good movie is put there by accident. 
So when Casey gets assaulted by the bikers in the inciting incident in the art of self-defense, and his attackers are completely covered from head to toe, that little annoying writer voice said those people are from the dojo. And when Casey is invited to the night class, well, we know what that is going to be as well. Waiting patiently behind that voice that tells me what is going to happen before it does is another voice that sometimes screams, they're going to subvert your expectations. But if you know they are going to do that, aren't you also expecting that? And round and round we go. And yet, even with seeing where things would go, I had so much fun that I couldn't stop thinking about this movie. I would find myself spontaneously laughing days later as one of its absurd bits would just pop up. And so that brought me to the question, how do we enjoy the ride when we know exactly where we're going? It's almost like rewatching something that you've never seen before. The answer changes, I suppose, depending on the film. For The Art of Self-Defense, my enjoyment came from its wit and deadpan delivery. For Fight Club, it's the characters and at times the humor. It's almost never the plot points. I mean, I think this is just a great big depends, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, because I think it depends on what the film itself is prioritizing. Uh, you know, I, I mean, we Tasha and I will discuss in a, a bonus episode of the show, the film Knives Out. I was just thinking that was going to be the perfect is, example for this the, letter. Which is the where the plot points are are one of the are absolutely delightful <laughs> and uh, and, uh, and complex and and a big key to why the film is so good. But then you know you watch you know, a Michelangelo Antonioni film and none of that matters. It's just, it has to do with just, you know, soaking in the ennui of these characters. So I think a movie, the movie itself kind of tells you what its priorities are and then you kind of take away from it what you will, right? That's such a good way of of phrasing that. I was actually dumbstruck for a second there. Oh, (laughs) Yeah. uh, No, that's that's just a really good summary. Um, I'm an inveterate movie predictor. I I can't help but be uh, a beat or two ahead of a movie in my head when I'm watching a movie. And so when when a movie surprises me, when it goes in a direction I hadn't expected, that is one of my favorite things. Like with a movie, with a movie that I can't predict, that I authentically have no idea where it's going, I get very excited by that and so something like uh, Freaks which recently came into theaters not the uh, the old one set in a circus but the new one that's about a young girl whose father has uh, locked her inside a house and raised her there with no access to the outside world and you don't know why but you know there's a snow cone man outside trying to tempt her outside the house uh, for some strange reason hmm. and the the entire movie is a mystery and I spent the entire movie having no idea what would come next and I love that experience so I would much prefer that to a movie that you know exactly where it's going to go and then it goes there but there's a movie that I saw at TIFF called The Vast of Night which I will not spoil but I could sum up in a single sentence and from the very beginning it's it's pretty clear what's going to happen and then what you expect to happen happens But the execution of it is so much about the art of unexpected things happening with cameras, the art of uh, unexpected things happening in the script, the performances that you're watching, the ins and outs of slowly exploring a small town full of very colorful characters. So yeah, in that case, it becomes about the journey. Like films can do either one of those things. And if they do them well, uh, it's exciting. I am with Scott. It's a big old depends. Genevieve? Yeah, I I mean, I feel like this is almost sort of a extension of the previous letter, you know, asking the question of what do we take from a film that we already have an idea about going into 
And as has been said by both of you, uh, in both cases, it's, it's a big old depends. It depends on what the movie's intentions are and how it goes about doing it. Uh, it depends about on the skill of the filmmakers, ob- obviously. And, uh, you know, a personal taste. You know, if you are a, a movie guesser or if you are someone who doesn't, whose brain doesn't, uh, you know, immediately jump three, three plot points ahead because that's just not how your brain works, you know. Um, I don't think there are uh, definitive answers to this question because as evidenced by this discussion you can come up with you know numerous examples that do or do not do this to to different extents so you know your your mileage may vary but uh it's it's fun to think about nonetheless and and fun to think about uh, how how movies do the same thing different ways i think we should bring these letter writers together so jim (laughs) if you're ever if you're ever in austin you can hang out with jason jason if you're in Boston, likewise, sounds like you guys would have a lot to talk about. <laughs> we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll look at Hustlers, another stylish and propulsive crime drama about the art of ripping people off. Look for that next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Even better still, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, And follow us on Twitter at NextPicturePod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we'll be filing our applications for food and beverage chairman. 